Hey everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. As the notorious year 2020 turns into the next, many of us are inclined to seek moments of reflection and renewal. These are liminal spaces, an occasion for us to stay in this moment long enough to note where we have been and to decide how we want to live our lives going forward. Even though, let's be honest, in quarantine, sometimes the liminal space is just the doorway between your bedroom and your bathroom. This week has in the past included a mad dash for a pen and paper, or more recently, an Instagram top nine to capture significant moments from this past year and type a few goals for the next. But maybe I won't this year. Personally, this year has been an unusually reflective year already, and I'm grateful for that. I don't blame 2020 for this year. I know with the privilege I carry, there is some amount of choice and intention about the systems, relationships, and values I will invest in going forward. Perhaps you find yourself in the same position. There are folks who were taught that their black skin took them away from anything like holiness uh, because God dwelled in white people. It literally is bring your whitest self into the room. My next guest is my friend and colleague, the Reverend Carlton D. Johnson. Carlton is an elder of the First African Presbyterian Church in Lithonia, Georgia, and he heads up the Vital Congregations Initiative of the Presbyterian Mission Agency. A native of Atlanta, throughout his life he has maintained an intimate concern for the disenfranchised among the people of God, especially young African-American males. He's not only worked diligently in the outreach ministries of the church, but has also given himself to mentorship with the United States National Guard Youth Challenge Academy. Today, on the tail end of what many of us recognize as a very, very, very long year, is part one of our conversation together. We talk about the historical and present significance of watch night services, the transformative principles of Kwanzaa, and their connection with faith and formation. Let's jump right in. Carlton, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for this conversation. Thanks for having me. I remember uh, we talked just a few days ago and you mentioned that you self-described as an introvert, but a popular introvert who loves to be invited to all the parties so that you can say no to most of the invitations. Pretty much. That's it. <laughs> I feel really honored that you made time and uh, Merry Christmas to everyone who's listening. Absolutely. We're recording this before Christmas, but um, wanted to spend some time talking today about what happens and occurs in us and in our communities post Christmas, but mm. you know, baby Jesus has come, he's in the manger mm. and, um, tied in with American consumerism and um, some of the trappings of Christmas that jut right alongside the Advent journey, the Christmas journey, straight into New Year's. It's hard to separate, even for folks who are more rigorous and disciplined about their faith, what is the benefit of the story of the incarnation from Christian commercialism mm. that's co-opted in America and in the Western church? Sure. It's kind of a bummer place to start, but I just think I'll be feeling that way a week from now. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, the joys of Christmas for many folks, at least um, the way it was for my family, had to do with the gathering of people more so than 
the acquisition of new stuff. Mm -hmm. I've actually lived long enough now that when you ask me what I want for Christmas, I can't think of a thing. And I've actually probably been here for about 10 years now. There's not a gadget that I am longing for, but what I am longing for and have been every Christmas or every holiday is just to gather with folks, with friends, which is going to take on a unique thing to do, if you will, this year, because even last year, though the pandemic was ramping up, nobody knew it. Now we're in the heart of it and the numbers are increasing. So everything's off. So you can't gather everyone. So how do you gather some people? How do you connect with some people? How do you spend the time during the time after Christmas with some extra phone calls or some extra Zooms and whatever it is that can, you know, make you feel better. Make, it'll make me feel better to uh, have some time to talk to friends and family I haven't had a chance to talk to. So that's what I'm looking forward to since people will be off work and have nothing to do all day except sleep late, eat breakfast after 12 o'clock and talk to me. <laughs> We're talking obviously in the week that includes both Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, mm -hmm. which in popular sort of American culture is often marked by people watching the countdown and, mm -hmm. you know, streamers and fireworks and champagne and uh, the countdown on Times Square and pop music and all of that. Yeah. And uh, you had um, taken me back many New Year's Eves ago mm -hmm. to your own experience of that particular day of December 31st on the calendar yeah. that's ushering in the new year and um, where you found yourself at the church mm -hmm. on watch night. That's right. And I'm wondering if you could maybe just start with a little bit of a background on watch night. Sure. Watch night as it was originally or first celebrated was December 31st, 1862 slash January 1st, 1863. And this was the night on which the Emancipation Proclamation information was shared and uh, freed enslaved people were informed of that. And so they'd been watching for and listening for this good news. Some didn't get that information for months and even years later. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's another celebration that many are aware of called Juneteenth. Uh, so hold, hold that intention because it's only in recent, and I will say for me, maybe the last 15 plus, maybe 20 years, that that's really been at the heart of the celebration. If I go back to my childhood, it was a New Year's Eve celebration in the church. That's that's really what it was. And and the way it looked was we were celebrating having made it through the present year with all of the stuff that it involves as you know, being poorer, not necessarily poor, but poorer, you know, working class folks in the African-American community. So we celebrated having made it through another year and we kind of expressed our hopes for the next year. That service actually looked like something that could last anywhere from two hours to five or six hours. It began with a testimony service where everybody had an opportunity to come to the microphone and share how good the Lord had been over the last 365 days. For some, that was victory over illness, 
getting a new job finally, getting married, you know, finally having children, all sorts of things. For others, that was just simply saying, yeah, I'm still sick, but God kept me. I still don't have a job, but somehow I ate every day, uh, which was more of a celebration of what the community had done together, what families had done together. So that end with a, the pastor of the hour coming to give a rousing sermon. And let me tell you, if you think the celebration in, I guess, Times Square or downtown Atlanta is something on uh, New Year's Eve at midnight, you had to be in our church. The jump off was amazing at midnight. And, you know, as we shared, then the service started. <laughs> so, right, everything had <laughs> yes. gotten started, quote unquote, at about nine. Now it's midnight. And this celebration is when the service starts and the choir mm-hmm. starts to sing. And sometimes, like I said, it may be another hour. It may have been another couple of hours, just depending on the Holy Ghost. Yes. Yeah, that was my childhood. And then. You know, I messed around and got a couple of years of education and a couple of letters behind my name and um, wanted to look at this history and started sharing a little bit of it in, you know, in the worship service. Like this was what the first watch night looked like. And, you know, as we talked about some of respectability politics, I will remember um, Dr. Love Henry Welchel. Uh, who's a professor of African-American history at the ITC when I was a student there, talked about the history of African people in America is one that's too painful to remember, and yet it's too important to forget. Mm-hmm. And people didn't want to remember. They didn't want to hear about what happened at that time in history. So bringing that up during a worship service was like, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, right? But then slowly, uh, again, we... We talked about it a little more here and there. Different churches were more welcoming of the conversation. And um, now that's flipped in over entirely. I guess we may talk about a little more where the whole of the celebration is recalling and remembering that story and how important that particular event was to our ancestors. You mentioned um, Evelyn Higginbotham's Mm -hmm. respectability politics. Would you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about What comes to mind for you when you think about that term? Sure. So once again, a part of our history is that there are folks who were taught that their black skin took them away from anything like holiness, that there is no way that God could inhabit a someone that was that beautifully chocolate brown as I am, uh, because God dwelled in white people. I think a concept that has manifested itself in the praxis of Christianity, especially in Western Christianity, of like being divorced from the body, but particularly in black bodies and brown bodies, this idea of like, don't bring your whole self into Mm -hmm. the worship service, but show up as some kind of Mm -hmm. version of. It literally is bring your whitest self into the room. I can remember at the dawn of my own uh, work in Uh, ministry specifically coming to uh, this denomination. Because, you know, as we've talked, I came from a Baptist church and a community of Baptist churches where everyone was African-American. They were all black folk. And um, so coming to this denomination, uh, serving in mixed and or predominantly white congregations, one of the earliest pieces of advice I got from the folks Mm -hmm. that were 
or are still my mentors mm-hmm. was don't change who you are. Mm-hmm. Folks don't have to like you. They do have to respect you. And the only way you're going to be respected is by being yourself. So don't mm-hmm. start changing your speech up and doing a whole lot of code switching mm-hmm. and all this type of stuff. Just be yourself. Uh, sometimes that's extremely dangerous <laughs> because myself isn't necessarily a church person. But, you know, when I talk about or when I was uh, you know, referring earlier to some of the ways of my ancestors. Yeah. And again, some of my elders, and trust me when I say I hold none of this against them, Mm -hmm. none of it, because most of it, if not all of it, was about survival and about how do you show up in a way that's going to allow you to be the best breadwinner for your family. So a lot of this came with, again, you know, here we are sitting at the dawn of 2021, and we're still in a fight over whether black hair is accepted in as quote-unquote professional in most workplaces Uh, again everyone was trying to do the thing that they thought Mm -hmm. would make them most acceptable including worshiping god in the most uh western Mm -hmm. slash european Mm -hmm. way possible It changes all the uh, stanzas in the Bible that describe actually some sort of embodied faith, mm. like clap your hands, all you people, shout with joy into metaphors, mm. and then you just sit there silently and nod or <laughs> do you know, think spiritual thoughts. Uh, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting <laughs> to make a list of the things that you leave behind in order to be the whitest version of ourselves and what's in that discarded pile. And mm-hmm. in one particular point in history that you described to me mm. was... Um, the connection between large Abyssinian black churches mm-hmm. on the East Coast mm-hmm. and large employers, mm-hmm. companies like the Ford Motor Company, yeah. their involvement with funding the churches and, yeah. and what that looked like. Yeah. So that, again, that whole idea of uh, respectability politics, those that went to church were thought of to be the kind of the cream of the crop. So, again, if you were in the church, you recognize prohibition. So you you weren't likely to be someone who, you know, went out and had a decent time on the weekends. So all of these things that were being taught in the church made these folks the most sought after. As employees. As employees, uh-huh. right? And so that some of the bigger companies like Ford, uh, motor company gave major major donations to the construction of these large uh, churches in the northeast uh, of course this was during and or uh, right after the great migration of folks from the south to the north and there was some conflict even there between the ways that the southerners brought their southern slash gulf ways of worship right the this high-spirited worship to where northern blacks had been more i'm just going to use this word for lack of better sedated and european in their uh ways of worship uh so there was some conflict between those communities but what these companies saw was the folks that uh, attended these big more prestigious churches uh, had the more uh, employable black folks. So they invested in the churches and essentially used the churches as recruiting centers. So it gave way that grandmother and mother and wife and father wanted you to 
act right so that you get a good job. I, I would even argue that that was some of the beginnings of this kind of uh, prosperity gospel, that if you act right and do all this stuff, you get a good job and that's God's blessing. And so then, you, yeah. you know. Fast forward to these are times and it makes me, for some reason, start thinking about speaking of church planting the way that oftentimes established Presbyterian committees will say, we should plant a church in this county so that we would have, quote, a Presbyterian presence there, end quote. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I think I know what that means. You know? And if, if you've ever said that, if you're listening, mm -hmm. that's an invitation to think about what is it that we mean about a Presbyterian presence? Yeah. And why is it needed in that county? Yeah. All these codes for things. Yeah, you know, I, I um, talk to a lot of pastors and churches who want to know what is the thing that they can do to get people from other cultures, uh, races specifically, into their worship, right? And so yeah. <laughs> they do some interesting yeah. stuff with their dress codes and hiring a hip band leader and all this kind of stuff. But I said, you know, that's kind of not... So I offer you the Bible, <laughs> read what Jesus did. It wasn't kind of opening your church to make people come to it. Mm -hmm. It was going to where the people are. Yeah. Right. So if you want to have a presence in a particular community, then show up in that community and go where they're worshiping. Yeah. And mm -hmm. as you form community, the outgrowth of that may be another congregation. But the main thing is if even if for churches who are, you know, suffering in different ways, go across town, uh, go two blocks over and worship with the folks, not wanting to change them or have them to change you, just be there, mm -hmm. be present. You described a time of growing up in your home church, Baptist Church in Atlanta, mm -hmm. not hearing about Kwanzaa and mm -hmm. the principles of Kwanzaa mm -hmm. until you were about 11 mm -hmm. and knowing that also oh, later on, mm -hmm. realizing that they had been introduced by um, Dr. Karenga mm -hmm. when you were about three years yeah. old. So there's this 11 year gap until a new preacher actually yeah, came yeah. and started to sort of introduce the experience mm -hmm. and principles of Kwanzaa into the life of this Christian community. Yeah, the Greater Bethany Baptist Church, Reverend Lester, is a, a graduate of the Morehouse School of Religion at the ITC and was one of the folks that encouraged me to go to seminary years after I'd been you know, decades after I'd been in corporate America for mm -hmm. a while. Just back to my childhood, again, respectability politics. I'm, I'm going to stay there for just a second. Yeah. Things that were Afrocentric, African-centered were not normally accepted in the church. Sorry, that's just the way it was in my context. Now, if someone else has a different one, I don't know. But in my context and all of the churches of folks that I knew, it wasn't. To be honest with you, even though most churches now have drums and uh, guitars, those weren't even around until I was in my teen years. A bass guitar, oh my God. So mm -hmm. the rhythms and things that would be considered Afrocentric uh, were not acceptable. Uh, likewise, this idea of Kwanzaa. Now, uh, when Dr. Karenga originally introduced Kwanzaa, because of a lot of things going on in the larger social context. He introduced it as uh, something that one might celebrate along with Christmas. Hmm. The way that was translated and or 
you know, soundbited was that he was trying to replace Christmas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, good Christians, black, white and otherwise were not having that. So he was demonized. But if you read his writings, he never meant to replace Christmas. What he was trying to do was give black folk a season or a time of reflection on these principles that would help them in ushering in the new year, uh, ways of reflecting upon these principles of community that might help them just, again, just take that time to talk about these things during that week between Christmas and New Year's. Mm -hmm. So it's a seven-day celebration, of course, uh, that begins the day after Christmas. My childhood pastor, you know, he would drop nuggets about it here and there. I mean, he was a young man with a family. He was not trying to get fired, messing with these folks in their Christmas. Uh, you know, mess with folk in their Jesus now. So he was not trying to get fired. But slowly, others of us, and when I say slowly, I mean like a decade or yes. so later, uh, would study and find out a little more. And just like we slowly started to talk about the history of Watch Night, slowly we would talk about Kwanzaa. Now, where that particular church, uh, because I'm still in fellowship and I love them dearly, many of the folks that are like my play mamas and play cousins and stuff are still there. They may not have such a large Kwanzaa celebration there particularly, even though they do observe it. Uh, On the larger scale, many more African-American churches are celebrating Kwanzaa. Again, it's not a religious celebration. It's a cultural celebration that churches as well as other community organizations observe. At my own church, at our congregation, the First African Presbyterian Church, where Reverend Dr. Mark Ogunwele Lomax is the pastor, we actually take this time of year to look at the principles of Kwanzaa to see that they are actually in line with the teachings of Jesus. They are in line with the Bible. So even though it is a cultural celebration, it's not so distant from Christianity. Mm -hmm. It is actually in line with who we profess to be. So again, that's helpful for the folks who are Christian and don't want to get too far away from Jesus. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things on that list, right? But in terms of like Mm -hmm. any activity as a human being, you know, who we vote for, how Mm -hmm. we make decisions, what we purchase and from whom Mm -hmm. that we might think, well, that's anti-spiritual or that's, (laughs) you know, of another realm that's not Jesus's realm. In Mm -hmm. reality, it's Mm -hmm. like reflecting on some of the principles of Kwanzaa and Mm -hmm. wondering if if you find yourself drawn to particular ones on certain years, or if this year that there's a principle that speaks to your heart and to yourself most evocatively. Sure. I am a, call me a major celebrator. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who, who deeply recognizes Kwanzaa and the principles therein. And so this year, if I have to think of any of the principles that have been so very important, One of them is the first principle, which is emoja. Emoja means unity. If we just talk about the way that people came together around the increased awareness of racial unrest, particularly in the African-American community, but then I will say in uh, those that would be allies with us, those that would be co-conspirators with us, um, there was a, a sense of unity 
that this present administration wasn't just trying to kill black folk. They could care less about any folk that weren't them. Mm -hmm. So you may not have been in the crosshairs, but you were going to suffer from friendly fire. Mm -hmm. So there was that uh, uh, unity became important. Also in the pandemic, people needed each other to survive the isolation, to survive the loss, both in terms of resources and jobs, as well as human life. So unity has been very important through 2020. Another principle that has served as well is Kumba. Kumba is uh, creativity. Mm. And Lord knows we've had to be creative, uh, not only in our uh, ways of survival, but also in the ways that uh, folks have come together to push justice and get folks out to vote. I have never seen such enthusiasm around getting people to the polls and the creative uh, ways we've done it, even from the memes uh, on Facebook and, and you know, social media and, and whatnot that have gotten folks uh, to the polls, but also just in recognizing that everyone has talents and gifts and that nobody is more important than others. But if I can close that up, the most important for me has been uh, the final principle, which is faith, Imani. Imani uh, is a different kind of faith, though. Typically, when we think of faith in the Christian context, we are referring to faith in God. And certainly that is a part of the faith lifted by the principle of Imani. But also, Imani is believing uh, with all our hearts in our people, in our parents, in our teachers, in our uh, leaders, and just believing in each other. I might say believing in humanity, having hope. I love the way the writer of Ephesians says that we were created for good works and this was intended to be our way of life mm. so that when we see people doing all manner of stuff uh, that is not supportive of the humanity of other people, regardless of their phenotype, how they look, who they love and where they live, they're not paying attention to the fact that they were created for good works, mm. created to uplift and support other people. That's supposed to be our way of life. And we have to have that kind of faith in each other that I don't need to worry about what you're going to do, quote unquote, behind my back. We're humans, we're family. And I have faith that you will look out for my well-being and the well-being of my family and you should have faith that I will do the same for you and your family. Yeah, that sort of feels like the opposite of every social media encounter I've had this year. <laughs> Tonight, on New Year's Eve, you can join the celebration of Emoja Karamu with the First African Church online at firstafricanchurch.org. That's First African with a K. Friends, stay tuned and be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss a single special episode. Our subscribers are streaming from Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Tomorrow, we'll be back with part two of our conversation with Carlton. Thanks for listening to New Way, 
podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. We're online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous and incredibly patient Martha M. Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time. Thank you.